0: From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today our interviews are helmed by OSU students. First, Juno Diaz talks to OSU student Anne Lucy McGreevy about his novels, including his most recent, This Is How You Lose Her. Then, Bones author Kathy Reichs discusses her novels and television work with OSU student and Lantern reporter Haley Kim. Stay tuned.
1: you know thank you for being with us today on writers talk
2: thank you so much for having me
1: so one of the things that i really love about your writing and in this collection in particular is the humor i consider some of these stories to be sort of masterpieces of subtle humor and i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you approach incorporating humor into your into a piece
2: well i think that this started with me um Pretty early on, my first book was in my mind a little bit too grim. I wanted to work more humor into it, but I didn't have the I actually just didn't have the muscles, the talent for it. I guess the overriding ethics of my work has always been this sense that even in the grimmest of time, somebody's always cracking up or someone's always making a joke. And that people recognize that life doesn't correspond to the kind of neat categories that we find in the TV Guide where something's drama, something's comedy, you know, something's like romance. I think that things tend to bleed into each other. So I kept thinking to myself as I was writing these stories, I said no matter what, no matter how rough this stuff is, there has got to be some chuckles in it or it's not going to feel real.
1: Yeah. So some of the stories in this collection take on really novelistic proportions. Tell us about how a story begins in your mind versus how a novel begins and sort of like at what point in the process, you know, that a piece you're working on will be one or the other? Well,
2: I mean, I think part of what happens is, at least with this book, is that this book started out with a a larger canopy, it started out with a larger structure. And what I mean by that larger structure was that I had this idea for this is how you lose her that I wanted to kind of write this book about the rise and the fall of a cheater. And I knew I wanted to tell it in stories, and I knew I wanted to tell it in connected stories, and so that's how this book began. And so every single story that I wrote in this, I either worked on or discarded based on how well they fit that framework. A novel's quite a you know approaches in the same direction where you have this kind of larger idea, and then you try to go through and explore it. But with a novel, of course, the um, the amount of connectiveness. And the amount of gaps um, are sort of uh, quite different from sort of a linked collection of stories. There's more connectedness in novel and less gaps. And sometimes, you know, that uh, can be its own problem. But in this case, I think this book began with this larger idea. And from there, I tried to find stories that would fit and sort of work stories that would fit. And I ended up throwing out an enormous amount to get this thing to work.
1: An enormous amount of, of stories that you had taken t- to their finish?
2: Um, just an enormous amount of stories and an enormous amount of material. Because, again, it's like if two stories overlapped too much, then that would be that. You couldn't have it. It was kind of a death match in the 16 or so years that I was writing this. I threw out a ton of things because you want to get the stories to work perfectly together. And there are stories that I wrote that were okay. They were pretty darn good or they seemed to function, but they wouldn't work with the other stories. And so that meant they had to be cut.
1: One thing that really interested me about this collection was that most of the time, Junior tells us his stories in the first person. But here we had a handful where he tells us the story in the second person. Why the switch?
2: Well, second person is kind of fun. I mean, it's, you, you, you hear perhaps, you know, an older person talking to his younger self. Um, there is a kind of an alienating distancing effect in the second person, which is good, too. It gives some space for the reader. Um, and it's it's not a bad um, challenge. I mean, I got to tell you, to write a second-person story that doesn't entirely repulse every reader is <laughs> kind of it's not a bad challenge. So part of me, I guess, knew that I could I could do first-person stories. I've done first-person stories. But, you know, part of me kind of thought, like, let me work in this area where it's far harder to get people to follow along. And it was just I got I got a guess that my material required the distance, and plus I thrived under the challenge.
1: I have to tell you, as a, a reader and a, a big fan, I sort of love Junior in in certain stories, like *The Sun*, *The Moon*, and *The Stars*, when he has that first person. You know, he he can tell me everything from the first person. And then in *Alma*, *Miss Laura*, and *The Cheater's Guide to Love*, I found him to be sort of like at his least sympathetic. So I think you're right. It is it is a really interesting distance to put between the reader and the character. Sticking with Junior a little bit, why have you stuck with him as a narrator for so long? Um, Is it a conscious decision or does he sort of like worm his way into your stories?
2: Well, no. I mean, I think that when you put the books that I've written together, there's a sense that this is a larger narrative, that this is a tapestry of someone's life. I mean, my plan, my dream would be to be able to write five or six books following Junior through his whole life. And I think that would be sort of a a nice little project to be able to complete. I find him to be just a fascinating character. He's, you know, as you said earlier, he's not entirely sympathetic. He's sort of human. Um, He's got plenty of flaws. He's got plenty of things that are charming about him. And there's way a way that he sees the world, which to me keeps bringing me back to the page. He's both ferociously honest and delusionally sort of self-deceptive. And I I kind of enjoy that combination.
1: So which of these stories in the new collection was the most difficult to write or finish?
2: God, I think, you know, I mean, it's it's terrifying. But again, the way, the the fact that all these stories were meant to work together in one unit, um, I think that that's what sort of challenged the heck out of me. You know, and uh, a lot of times, you know, when you're being sort of, as a writer, you're always kind of being subtle, and you're sort of hiding things because you want room for like really nerdy grad students to dig stuff out. I think, you know, I think there's a story in there called Otra Vida, Otra Vez, which is actually about Junior's father and the woman that he nearly, you know, abandoned the family for. Yeah, and you know, it's a story that I think is it's easy for people to miss that connection because in a way you'd have to like actually remember some of the details of the family from drown. Mm -hmm. Again, that was a hard story because a part of me wanted to put the connections in more, but then a part of me thought like, I think it's okay for writers to miss for readers to miss it and for readers to struggle. And I just thought the idea of some reader who had read drown recently and encountered the story and suddenly was able to make the connections and say, Oh my God, the woman in the Dominican Republic is Junior's mom. Oh, my God, that's Junior's father, Rafa, you know, Ramon, excuse me, is, um, I don't know, there was something like, I just, the promise of that allowed me to sort of stick to my gun to make the story rather, you know, kind of mysterious in that way.
1: Did any of these stories come easily?
2: Unfortunately not. If they did, they, this thing would have been written in six months.
1: <laughs> okay, so I was sort of going along with that. Um, what is your favorite aspect of the writing process?
2: I'm one of those people who loves to be done. I got to tell you, the writing process is not a joy. There's some people who seem to adore it. They're like, yay, I'm writing, you know, every day. They're like, oh, I'm enjoying my stuff. I don't live in that universe, man. I, I I find it's sort of like drawing water from the bottom of Moria all the way to the top of Karatras. You know, you're just... It's an incredible chore. It's an incredible labor. But you know, it's, it's, I always say this, sometimes you're really good or you're good at something that you find incredibly difficult. That's the writing for me. But at the end, I look at it and I said, well, before you wrote this, this did not exist. You have not done shabbily.
1: I've read in other interviews that you've said a few times that you don't write every day. Do you write on any kind of schedule or do you just write when you're inspired?
2: Well, no. I mean, I read every damn day. I, you know, I I I kind of read like I read like I don't know what I read like other people sort of live. You know, I it's it's become it's it's sort of a force. You know, it's a process in my life, and you know, I write a lot. I write, you know, at least yeah, at least every second or third day. And um, when something is working, I write nonstop. I write from morning to night. You teach
1: writing at MIT, right? Um, So a lot of people think that this is sort of like an ideal job for a writer because you're constantly thinking about fiction and craft, and others think it can lead to burnout. Uh, What's your experience with it?
2: Well, you know, it's hard to abstract to a universal from a very particular experience. I mean, I think anybody, depending on what you're looking for, you can find it in a narrative like the one you're describing, teaching, writing. Um, I do think most of us would rather just be doing our work, but I also think most of us would prefer a truly democratic utopian society as well. I think the reality is that, you know, we all have to work for a living, and very few of us can work off, very few of us can live off our writing. And for me, that's kind of not a bad compromise. I kind of enjoy teaching. I think that it's a wonderful vocation. I think it's perhaps the most important part of our sort of democratic experiment um is our educational system and there's something to it that feeds me as a person it doesn't help my writing at all let me tell you oh it doesn't you know, i don't think so i mean really i guess it, it perhaps in a subtle sort of uh, underground process sort of way it does but in general you know teaching is a lot of work um it takes you for, away from your reading it takes you away from your writing and um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean some people for some people it fuels them, but not me. I mean, by the time I get done with the semester I'm thinking, damn, I didn't write a word.
1: <laughs> okay. I read a lot about sort of like what you read that inspired you when you were writing the novel. Which which short stories and short story writers inspire you the most?
2: Oh I got quite a bit of them, man. I mean quite a bit of them. I'm a huge fan of Michael Martone. Mm-hmm. Um He's an Indiana writer, of course. He's a U.S. writer. He's stupendous. Mm-hmm. You know, he's somebody who I, I turn to a lot. There was a connection, a collection um, called Incantations by Anjana Apachana out of Rutgers University Press that I think is phenomenal. It's one of these books that, uh, you know, is really important to me. You know, I, I really enjoy, um, really enjoy James Salter's work. Um, especially Dusk and other stories. Um, you know, Sandra Cisneros, of course, is incredibly just, um, I think, uh, incomparable short story writer. You know, it's the the thing about someone like me is that the list goes on. You know, the debts I owe to all of these writers is really remarkable.
1: Mm-hmm. And what are you reading right now?
2: oh God! I'm actually reading stuff which is, is is kind of you know nuts i'm 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 rereading a book because i i i, I kind of need something from this book so i'm rereading uh julisuka's um the Buddha in the attic and i apologize for name pronunciations immigrant and me um, <laughs> and uh i've been reading that um that's actually i just started it this morning and uh, i'll just be done by today it's a short novel.
1: When did you know for sure that you wanted to be a writer?
2: I think I'm still wrestling with that. I'm not not a lie. I think every time. I, I think again. Part of the. I think part of what's awesome about writing really really fast is that you don't spend a. You know, you don't spend uh, a lot of time worrying about your calling. You don't spend a lot of time questioning, yeah, your vocation. I think me, I've spent so takes me so long to write that there's plenty of time for me to say, yo, what am I doing? Is this important? And is this really what I should be doing? You know, it's the, the difference between someone who's like running full out in a marathon and someone who's sort of <laughs> taking an incredibly leisurely stroll, you know, with, uh, you know, probably a 40 in their hand. You get, you get a lot of time to doubt. I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess I had a sense that I was, um, you know, when I first started to write *Drown* and seriously, you know, '95, I think I knew that my life was going to be linked to writing for a very long time. But again, like I said, I, I still I, every time I, I'm working on a book, I think, Jesus, um, is this really what I'm cut out for?
1: So, if you weren't a writer and teacher, what might you be doing?
2: No, I'd be a teacher. I'd be in a high school somewhere, you know, being. Um, sort of uh, ridiculous and trying really hard and being sincere you know <laughs>
1: okay um so i imagine that a lot of the people who will listen to this uh this interview might be undergraduates at ohio state and members of current members of the mfa program and i know you did an mfa at cornell what kind of advice might you have for folks who are currently you know studying fiction in in an mfa program
2: God, there is an entire industry of giving young people advice—an industry that sort of uh, is terrifying, and it's enormity, and also when it's almost, um, it's almost sort of religious seriousness. I I don't know. I think that you know the writing game sort of has certain kind of, uh, in some ways, nearly axiomatic <laughs> truth, which is to say, if I had to give any advice and. I'm sort of loath to do it I, I would say kids, young people, young artists, artists of any kind, it's really this game is pretty straightforward. you've got to read so much that you feel like your head's going to explode. yeah, read a book a week and you'll be you know you'll be far on your way, and probably second most important thing is that a lot of creative writing programs and especially universities have obscured what really matters about being an artist. A lot of my students and a lot of the undergraduates I meet they approach creative writing like they would approach a pre-med major Mm -hmm. they've like completely professionalized it they're like taking classes in creative writing i'm like are you crazy i think like one creative writing class every two years is suficiente that's like plenty you know i think that what matters most and what makes an artist what makes this work possible is that people read you because they want news of the world and so I would argue if you were a young artist and you were interested in pursuing this, your engagement to the world is more important than you sort of taking classes and creative writing and sort of going from your undergraduate right to your MFA class, your MFA program. I would, I always tell students, kick around in the world two, three, four years before you even think about putting a pen to a paper. Just go nuts. Go out there. Just get yourself lost. Get your heart broken. Really get into that world because the writer whose commitment to the world is deep, she is the writer that people want to read, not the person who's sort of an academically produced um, sort of neat little byproduct. Those people, okay, we can do good stuff, but really we sort of pale in comparison to this other writer who lives in the quote-unquote real world and has some news to deliver.
1: I read in an in interview, I think this was an interview a while ago, that you and some friends of yours were suing a club in Santo Domingo because of racial discrimination. Is that Was that accurate?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, this is more of, I mean, I think this is a lot more, this is a longer story than no, we, have uh, time. we have room for. I, I I just think that what happened in the Dominican Republic is that there's very little by way of uh, civic or civil liberties. I mean, and certainly very, very few protections uh, for the average citizen. And there's a standard thing that happens in the Dominican Republic in a lot of clubs is that people who are too phenotypically black looking, this is kind of ironic in a country where the majority of people are black, who are routinely denied entrance to clubs. And the excuse always is, oh, this is a private party. This happens so much that the sort of uh, consulate, the folks who work uh, the foreign service in the United States, are warned when they come to the Dominican Republic about how common this is. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this actual, what we did in the Dominican Republic was part of an act to sort of bring awareness to this problem and also to sort of show how paltry and how irresponsive the legal system is, how it doesn't protect the average Dominican citizen from this kind of outrageous abuse
1: Thank you, Juno Diaz, again, for being with me today on Ohio State Writer's Talk.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, sis.
1: The book, again, is This Is How You Lose Her. For Writer's Talk, I'm Annie McCreevy.
0: That was OSU student Anne Lucy McGreevy talking to author Juno Diaz about his novels, including his most recent This Is How You Lose Her. More information is available at www.writerstalk.org. Now, OSU student and Lantern reporter Haley Kim talks to Bones author Kathy Rikes.
3: Hello, this is Haley. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I am working for The Lantern at the Ohio State University newspaper. You're working as a writer, producer, and forensic anthropologist. Do you think you are a workaholic?
4: Well, I like to keep busy. It does take
3: organization.
4: Um, I'm writing two different series of books. I'm writing the Temperance Brennan books, so I do one of those every year. The new one this year is Bones Are Forever. And I'm also doing a Young Adult series featuring Temperance Brennan's 14-year-old great niece and her three friends. So I do, that's the viral series. So I do one of those every year as well. I write those with my son. So it is, it is a busy schedule.
3: Your novel, Bones and Our Forever, is it inspired by your casework? Each
4: one of my Temperance Brennan books is inspired by an experience I've had or a case that I've worked on.
2: Mm-hmm. The
4: first one, Deja Dead, was based on a serial murder case, um, Fatal Voyage, is based on my disaster recovery work that I've done that involves a commercial airline disaster. Grave Secrets is based on some human rights work I did exhuming a mass grave down in in Guatemala. Bones Are Forever, the new book, is also based on some experiences that I've had. It starts out with a case of infanticide, and that's because when I was starting to think about this book, I was simultaneously working on three child homicide cases, one involving an 11-month-old infant, One was a two-year-old and one was a 10-year-old. So the idea of the death of truly innocent victims, children, uh, was on my mind. So I'm trying to, through my character in these opening scenes, um, I'm trying to bring out some of the emotions that I feel when I'm having to work on those kinds of very, very innocent and vulnerable victims.
3: Have you ever tried to put some humor in your books and your TV series? Both in the TV show, Bones,
4: and in my Temperance Brennan books, I do put humor. And that's a very fine line to walk. It's a balancing act. Because both in the show and in the books, we deal with violent death. And yet, to try to put humor in without being respectful um, is challenging. But from the beginning of the TV show and the beginning of the Temperance Brennan series of books, it was important to me to put humor in there. I wanted the character to have a sense of humor and particularly a sense of humor about herself. So in The Noons Are Forever, she and Detective Ryan, that she often works with, are joined by a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. And Tempe has had some romantic history with Sergeant Hasty. So there's a lot of friction between Andrew Ryan and Sergeant Hasty, And that made for some wonderful opportunities for humor in the dialogue between the two men.
3: Mm -hmm. Is there any reason you set the atmosphere at the Diamond Mines?
4: I visited Yellowknife, which is a small town up in the Canadian Arctic, up in the tundra in the far north. And I was really impressed by the place. The people there are very pioneering. They're very colorful. It's very interesting. There's French speakers. There's English speakers. There's Dene people. Um, Native American, Native Canadian peoples. So I really liked the place. I liked the tundra as a setting. Also the fact that gold mining is going on there and diamond mining began in the 90s when the gold mines shut down. So I just thought all of that made for a wonderful mix for a background setting to a story.
3: Your Fox TV series Bones are coming on September 7th. Can you tell me a little about that?
4: The series Bones Mm -hmm. will be starting its eighth season on, I believe, September 17th, Mm -hmm. uh, which is amazing. Most television shows don't go eight seasons. Very, very few go eight seasons. So apparently we're doing something right. Um, I'm always gratified to see that Temperance Brennan has such global appeal. The show is in 75 foreign territories, and we're in our eighth season. The books are in 35 some different languages. So for some reason this character, both in the TV form and in the book form, because they're a little bit different, has this global appeal. Now I think of TV Tempe and book Tempe. And TV Tempe is a bit different. She's younger. She's in Washington D.C. She has not yet been married. Whereas in my books, TV is older. She's in her 40s. She works in North Carolina and in Montreal, and she's got some history that we learn about. So I like the fact that there's a difference. I think of the TV show Tempe as a prequel. It's like an earlier point in Tempe's life. Tempe, the early years. So when I sit down to write a new Temperance Brennan novel, I'm not impacted by what's happening with TV Tempe. I can write my book Tempe um, and do whatever I want with the character, and I like that.
3: I think, Brennan, she's really, really similar to you. Do you think yourself influenced the character? They say to write about
4: what you know about. So when I started my first book, Deja Dead, Mm -hmm. 15 books back, um, I decided my main character would be a forensic anthropologist because that's what I do. So she is very similar to me in many ways, professionally. As an individual, she's very distinct. She has her own character and her own personality.
3: Mm-hmm. What is the hardest part of being forensic anthropologist?
4: I think the hardest parts are remaining objective and detached, because you have to be a scientist. You have to try not to allow yourself emotional involvement; otherwise, you can't do your job. That's one of the hardest things.
3: Writer, or producer, or anthropologist—what job defines you?
4: One of the things I like is that there's feedback between what I do. Mm-hmm. I like moving from the world of television to the world of literature to the world of science. And it all feeds back. Because I'm a scientist, because I'm in the forensic lab, it gives me ideas for my stories. And because I'm a scientist, it makes me a good observer of detail. So being a scientist makes me a good writer. But being a writer makes me a good scientist as well, because I observe details I might otherwise ignore, like, you know, something like what does a fly sound like buzzing against the fluorescent light so it's all a feedback kind of relationship and I like doing more than one thing I like having my foot in all these different worlds
3: thank you so much I'm so excited to read your book and watch the TV series alright well thank you so much
0: that was OSU student and lantern reporter Haley Kim talking to Bones author Kathy Reich's more information about Kathy Reichs's work is available at www.writerstalk.org. Now a sneak peek up for next week's interview with author Kate Hayes about her book, All About Poop, hosted by OSU student Erin Riley Sanders.
5: I'm Erin Riley Sanders. An award-winning blogger, Kate Hayes has just authored her first picture book, All About Poop, with illustrations by Brenna Vaughn. Haze's blog, adventuresinparenting.me, focuses on her life as a wife and mother of two as a faith journey while juggling a professional career in television and broadcasting. She now works in public relations and marketing. Your picture book, All About Poop, just hit bookstore shelves with some info on the big number, two for kids ages 4 to 8. Tell us about it and your inspiration for writing such a dirty story.
6: (laughs) Well, uh, my inspiration was my own kids, as, as you might imagine. Um, I had a son at the time who was two, and he was absolutely obsessed with poop. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't find any good books about it that explained what it was and answered all the questions that he had in a way that he
5: could understand. So I just decided, why not write one? It seems that there's been several recent books about poop. What makes your book stand out from the crowd? Well,
6: I could not find. I have not yet seen another book that specifically answers what poop is, how our bodies make it. Um, you know, all the questions that kids have, my son also is very curious about where does it go after we flush it? You know, where's this mm-hmm. magical place that all the poops go? Um, so this book does all of that, answers all those questions, but in a way that the young kids can understand. So we try to make it simple, we try to make it fun, it rhymes. So I haven't seen anything else like that on the market.
5: Why do you think that poop has recently become such a popular topic?
6: Well, I don't know if it's recently such a popular topic. I think it's always just a popular topic. I think maybe now as culture goes a certain way, it's becoming more socially acceptable to talk about it in public. But, um, you know, as parents, we've always gotten those questions. I'm sure that, you know, even 100 years ago, the kids were asking embarrassing questions about poop in the middle of church. You know, like it's, it happens. And so let's educate them a little bit more and tell them what it is, get them interested in the fact that it's science and maybe use that um, interest to bridge into other aspects of science. So we we tried to do that as well.
5: In All About Poop, you keep the text almost completely in rhyme. Can you tell us about some of the advantages and limitations of writing an informational book in rhyme?
6: Well, for me, it's um, it was fun. I I have always I'm a a writer by trade, so I, I write professionally. I used to be a TV journalist, so you know I'm used to explaining information. Uh, On a simple level But at the same time I've always wanted to write children's books I just think it's more fun to write in rhyme And I think it's more fun to read in rhyme To my kids Which, you know, we do every night I like the books I like the Dr. Seusses You know, I like the books That have a nice sing-song cadence And they're easy to read And I think that helps to get the kids To keep their interest longer So I just I don't know It wasn't like a conscious decision It just came out that way As I was writing the book
0: Join us next time for the rest of our interview with Kate Hayes, author of All About Poop. More information about any of our authors that you've heard today is available at www.writerstalk.org. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler from The Ohio State University. Keep writing.